0: Good morning, everybody. Uh, if you would please open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians. We're going to be uh, in chapter 4 and beginning with verse 5. That is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. Uh, and we are continuing our short series titled Who We Are. And the goal of this series is to remind all of us uh, what this congregation exists to do and proclaim. Now, again, who, who are we, right? We've had all these changes go on. It's good for us to refocus. Uh, and, and this morning, we come to the topic of the Lordship of Christ. All right, this church is a church that exists to proclaim and live out the reality of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Um, so for the third time now, obviously, the theme of this sermon is the Lordship of Christ. And in light of that, it's good to define our terms uh, what do I mean by lordship? All right, well, here, Here's my rough, uh, unpolished, redneck definition of the lordship of Christ. Uh, Jesus Christ is the only God, king, and ruler of all that exists. The only God, the only king, and the only ruler of everything. When we declare that Jesus Christ is Lord... We're declaring that everything belongs to him. Everyone belongs to him by right of his divinity and kingship, that he is the supreme lawgiver over all men, and that all men owe him their highest allegiance and obedience. Right? This is what we are proclaiming about Christ. He is Lord. And brothers and sisters, this is unpopular. <laughs> this is really, really unpopular. Um, I'm sure it's, I'm sure in generations past to one extent or another, in some way, uh, preaching about the Lordship of Christ and proclaiming the Lordship of Christ to the world has always been unpopular. Um, but, but it is unpopular definitely in our day. Um, and, and, the unpopularity of this proclamation is shown in a few ways, right? Just a quick thing, real quick. Think about this. How often do you hear modern American evangelicals refer to Jesus as the Lord Jesus? just in talking with them, right? You know, I was reading uh, in, in Matthew, you know, the Lord Jesus said, how often do you hear modern evangelicals refer to him as the Lord? You don't. His titles in, in, in general speaking with, uh, with American evangelicals today, he's just Jesus, right? Like almost as if it's casual, right? He's just Jesus. He's not even Jesus Christ most of the time. Like we strip him of both of his titles. He's just Jesus, right? It's quite popular for evangelicals to think like this, right? And maybe I'll step on some toes, but I love you enough, right? To do so. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. I'm not your enemy. So let's, let's, let's hurt each other a little bit. Um, (laughs) Jesus is my friend. There's a popular thought. Jesus is my friend. And in some regards, yes, right? Because Jesus says, you are my friends, right? To his disciples, you're my friends if you obey me. Absolutely. But people say, Jesus is my friend as if he is your equal. Right? He's my friend. Or, or this one, right? I used to have a t-shirt with this on it. Jesus is my homeboy. Blasphemy. Blasphemy. He's not your homeboy. He's not your pal. Right? But people speak about Christ, and there is no reverence and no holy fear whatsoever. Right? Or, or, or a lot of evangelicals like to think that uh, Jesus is needy, right? Right? He just wants you so much, He can't stand it. Don't you know that you're breaking his heart? He just wants you. He needs you. right? Or that Jesus is a hippie. right? He's in California wearing a pair of Birkenstocks. like he doesn't care about how you live or what you do so long as you love him and whatever that means, right? However you want to define loving him, Right, that he's okay with everything you do, and as one woman uh, posted on Facebook this week that I read, he just thinks you're amazing. Jesus thinks you're great. right? Or uh, that Jesus is somewhere up in the sky just wringing his nail-scarred hands, wondering what we're going to do. Right? How are things going to pan out? He doesn't know. He's scared to death, wondering if you're going to make the right choices. Or, and this one may be most common among even conservative Christians, Right? Jesus is only ever considered as Savior, but never hardly as Lord, right? His Lordship is rarely considered. It's not denied, but it's not really thought about. It's not really preached upon. But that's not what Scripture teaches us. None of those things. The Word of God declares time and again that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's actually, uh, we just recited the Nicene Creed. That was a long creed. Not, not the longest one, by the way. Look up the Athanasian Creed. Maybe we'll hit you for that with Christmas. It'll be good. Uh, it takes forever to read it. It's good stuff. Uh, but the earliest and shortest creed in all of Christianity is in 1 Corinthians 12.3. Jesus is Lord. That's the first Christian creed ever. And so that is what we are to declare, the Lordship of Christ. And my goal in this sermon is to make much of Christ and to show you what it means that Jesus is Lord. And, and I'm going to keep it real. I am not going to even begin to scratch the surface of this glorious truth and all that could be said, but I just want to consider three things that Jesus' lordship means and implies. And here they are. I'll tell you at the beginning. The lordship of Christ declares his deity, his dominion, and that he is the director of all men. All right, so there's your Baptist alliteration for the week easy to remember, right? Deity, dominion, director, right? So those are the three points I want to try to make this morning, and I'll be doing so uh, in a topical way. Um, So we're going to be looking at a whole bunch of different texts. We're going to read a whole lot of Bible this morning Mm -hmm. instead of just working through one passage. Uh, But we're going to be jumping off from 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4, verse 5a. We're just going to read the first half of 2nd Corinthians chapter 4 verse 5 but with that said now if you would and are able please stand with me for the reading of the inspired inerrant and infallible word of God 2nd Corinthians chapter 4 verse 5 for what we proclaim is not ourselves but Jesus Christ as Lord this is the word of God let's pray Our great God and Father, we come before you now and humbly ask for your blessing on the preaching of your most holy word. Open our eyes to the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, your only begotten Son. Show us what it means that he is Lord and show us what it means for how we are to esteem him and proclaim him and live in this world for his glory. Soften our hearts this morning that we might be made receptive to your truth. Work in us by your spirit and make the preaching of your word effectual to our salvation. Have mercy on us is what we're asking. Have mercy, we pray, and we ask for this in Jesus' name, and not for our sake, but for his sake, that you would hear us and answer our prayer. Amen. You guys may be seated. All right, so let, let me begin by reading our starting text again. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. All right, the Apostle Paul gives us a summary of his ministry here. He preached that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is what we proclaim, says Paul. And the we here, if you're wondering, refers, it's an apostolic we. It refers to all true apostles of Jesus Christ. Paul was fighting a, a battle with the Corinthians. There were some false teachers in Corinth who were saying that Paul was not a real apostle. And this letter, 2 Corinthians, is him saying, oh, really? Um, right? Because Paul is an apostle, and, he, and he's proving his apostleship to them. Um, so the we here refers to all true apostles. The apostles, being commissioned by Christ to go and preach the gospel, did not preach about themselves. They did not preach the wisdom of the world they did not preach their own ideas about things rather they were determined to proclaim that Jesus Christ is lord and they were determined to proclaim the fullness of what that means and what that entails for all men right so this is what all true apostles preached that Jesus Christ is lord so then if that's what the apostles preached that's what all their successors have preached that is all true ministers right by the way just the ministers of God are the successors of the apostles, not popes, right? All true ministers preach the same message that the apostles preached. And since all true ministers preach the same message of the apostles, then that means the message of the whole church is that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what we exist to proclaim because that's what the apostles proclaimed. But notice with me that in his first letter to the Corinthians, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, for I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified, right? Paul certainly did that. And he says here, but we proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord, right? I, I just want to address this real quick. Some people will say, well, which one did he proclaim? Uh, the answer is both, right? He's summarizing his messages, a message in two different uh, statements, right? When Paul says, I determined to know nothing but Christ and him crucified, he means that the cross is the absolute center of everything that he preached. And apart from the cross, nothing that he preached ever made sense, Right? But that's not all that he ever preached. Paul did not only preach that Jesus Christ is the Savior of sinners by his cross, but he also preached the Lordship of Jesus Christ over everything. Right? So just real quick, I want you to see this. Christ as Lord and Christ as Savior are inseparable. You cannot divide them up. Now, you can distinguish them when you're doing theology, but you cannot divide them in your reception of Christ. You cannot, contrary to some false teachers, you cannot truly savingly believe that Jesus is Savior without believing that he is Lord. And that's because when you become a Christian, you do not merely receive the benefits that Christ purchased at his cross, but you receive Christ. And Christ himself is Savior and Lord. You don't just receive the benefits of redemption when you become a Christian. By faith, you are united to him. You've received Christ in all of his fullness. So if you show me someone who says, oh, I've believed in Christ as Savior, but I have not received him as Lord, you're talking to an unsaved person. We receive the whole Christ. If you are to receive him as Savior, you must of necessity receive him as Lord. Right. So the apostolic message is that, if I could summarize. It's that Jesus is the suffering servant of the Lord, of Yahweh, That, that Jesus is the one who gave his life as a ransom for many, who died a substitutionary death of atonement in place of all who would believe on him, and that he was raised from the dead on the third day. But it's also a message that this same Jesus who died for sinners is Lord That he is the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. That he is, Revelation 19 tells us, the king of all kings and Lord of all lords. If we miss this, we will not be proclaiming the whole truth. And so we must be a people who proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. But what does that mean? Again, if we're to proclaim the lordship of Christ in order to be a faithful apostolic church, And again, when I say apostolic, I mean a church that preaches the message of the apostles. We must know what it means. Now, the word Lord, and it's kurios in the Greek. We're going to have to keep that in mind here for a minute. The word kurios, Lord, is a multifaceted word. It has layers in how it's used in reference to our Lord Jesus. Uh, So then, in order for us to get a full-orbed view of the Lordship of Christ, we're going to consider some of the different uses of the word Lord or kurios and the implications of them. And first, we're going to consider that the declaration that Jesus is Lord is a declaration of his deity. When we proclaim to the world that Jesus is Lord, we're saying that Jesus is God. He's God. So let's begin. In the Old Testament, there are... Hang in there with me, right? Just real quick. I already know some of you are going to want to tune out when I'm doing. Stay here, Right? In the Old Testament, there are two Hebrew words that we translate to Lord in our English Bibles. The first word is Yahweh, right? Yahweh, and that's God's formal name. We translate it in English to Lord with all capital letters. If you ever read your Old Testament and you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that is our, what we put in English for Yahweh, that is God's formal name, right? We translate it Lord. The second word that we translate Lord in our English Bible is Adonai. Again, we're talking Old Testament Hebrew. Adonai. And Adonai is a title that is used for God. And it means sovereign, master, like king, ruler over everything. And we translate it Lord, capital L, lowercase r, or lowercase o, lowercase r, lowercase d. right? So whenever you see that in the Old Testament, that's Adonai. And this is important for us because of, again, stay with me, because of the Septuagint. Some of you know what that is. It's the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was the Bible of the early church. Right? And in this Septuagint, in this Greek Old Testament, both Yahweh, God's name, and Adonai, God's title as sovereign ruler, are both translated by the same word in Greek, kurios, lord, and as Greek became the dominant language in many parts of the world, the, uh, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament spread, right? Greek becomes more dominant language. It's, it's more of an academic language, right? So what happens? The Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, spreads and spreads and spreads. And because of that, it became common usage by the first century when the New Testament was being written. It became common usage among Greek-speaking and Greek-reading Jews that God alone is to be called Curios. God alone is to be called Lord. Now, why did I say all that? Why did I give you that history lesson? Why? Well, the New Testament's written in Greek. The New Testament's written in Greek. So then, the apostles, who were Jews, Greek-speaking, Greek-reading Jews, when they began to call Jesus Curios after his resurrection, when they began to call Jesus Lord after his resurrection... They knew what they were saying about him, and so did everyone else. This is why people wanted to kill them, particularly the unbelieving Jews wanted to kill them. Why? Because in calling Jesus Lord, they were calling him nothing less than God Almighty. When they said Jesus is Lord, they were saying Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. And they were saying Jesus is Adonai. Jesus is the sovereign Ruler of everything. And that title is reserved for God alone. So again, when we, when we read the New Testament and we see references to Jesus as Lord or our Lord Jesus or the Lord Jesus or we proclaim Christ Jesus as Lord, the apostles are making a very bold and very clear statement about who Jesus is. He is God. Right? So, so there's just a, a general principle about Jesus' title of Lord the apostles knew and intended us to recognize that they were calling him the very name of God when they called him Lord. But let me show you some uh, even more explicit evidence of this. In, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, a pretty famous verse, you'll read this. Peter tells the Christians, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Honor Christ the Lord as holy in your hearts. Here, Peter tells uh, Christians that we are to honor Jesus as sacred in our hearts. Again, uh, we're to honor him as holy, recognizing that he's not like us, that he is above us, that he is not uh, like other men, right? He is truly human, but he's, he's more than that, so we're to, uh, he's truly God, so we're to esteem him more highly than anyone else. Uh, We're to honor him, again, as holy. And in my opinion, to honor someone as holy in the way that Peter seems to be speaking of it, honor him in your heart as holy, has clear connotations of worship. And again, notice 1 Peter 3.15, this verse, Jesus is called Christ the Lord. Now, sometimes we miss uh, allusions to the Old Testament and our New Testament because we don't know our Old Testament half as well as we should. Peter is referencing the Old Testament here. Remember, he's a Jew. He knows the Old Testament very well. And he's making a reference to the book of Isaiah, chapter 8 verse 13. We read something in that verse that sounds very similar to what Peter says in this letter. We read this, Isaiah 8:13, "But the Lord of hosts, Yahweh of hosts, right? God's name, but Yahweh of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread." The Old Testament tells believers to honor Yahweh, to honor God alone as holy. The Old Testament tells us that we are to live in the fear of God above all others. And God himself says all over the place in the Old Testament, but especially in the book of Isaiah, he says, I share my glory with none. I will not share my praise, my prestige, my renown, my honor, my fame, my glory with anyone, is what God says all throughout the book of Isaiah. But Peter has just told us in 1 Peter 3.15 that we are to honor Christ in our hearts just as we would honor Yahweh. He's using the same kind of language that Isaiah used. So then, just real quick, Peter is commanding idolatry from us unless, of course, Jesus is Yahweh. Unless Jesus is God. And he is. That's Peter's point. That's why Peter says you should honor him in your heart as holy. Why? Because he's Jesus the Lord because he's God. Or let's consider some other texts. Consider the words of the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians, or not 1 Corinthians, Colossians, chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. I'm not going to read the whole text to you, but if you, if you look at that text in verse 10, you'll see that the Apostle Paul refers to Jesus as the Lord, and then he goes on to speak of the work of redemption that Christ uh, accomplished for us, and then we go on to read this very famous portion of Scripture In verses 15 through 20, referring to Jesus, who has just been called the Lord. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Guys, these are attributes of deity. (laughs) These are attributes of God ascribed to. To Jesus, the Lord. He created everything. What does that mean? Well, that means anything that was created was created by him. And since he exists, that means he must have existed before anything else existed. That's God. That's eternality. He's not a creation. He is the creator. The text says he is preeminent in everything. What does that mean? Everything's under his authority. He's first above everything. The text says all things exist for him. What does that mean? For his glory, to glorify him, to do his bidding. It exists for him at his pleasure. And this, one of my favorite. He sustains everything. In him, all things hold together. If he ceases to will that the world exists, we we evaporate immediately. He holds the cosmos together. And all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. And if nothing else, what does that mean? Divinity is in him. If all the fullness of God is in him. Well, then the stuff that is Godness, divinity is in him. He is God. And Paul says that he is the Lord. So then his lordship means his divinity. Or consider, I got a whole bunch more examples. I'll just give you one more. Luke chapter 5. There we read of, this is a very famous story. Peter is being commanded by Jesus to go out on a boat with him. And there on the boat, Jesus tells Peter to put out his nets to catch fish. And Peter responds, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, right? We've been working all night. We didn't catch any fish, right? We've been fishing the spot all night, got nothing. But he says, but at your word, I will let down the nets. And when Peter did that, there were so many fish, the text tells us, that his nets began to break and they had to call a second boat over and the, the fish filled both boats to where both boats began to sink, And in the exact same place where they had been fishing all night and caught nothing, there is now a supernatural amount of fish that is unexplainable how they got there. But the only explanation is Jesus says, throw your nets out one more time, Peter. And when that happens, we read this in verse 8 of Luke chapter 5. Peter says this. It says, But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Peter declared Jesus is Lord, and Peter was terrified of him. Peter wanted him to get away from him. Why? Because I am a sinful man. He recognized he was in the presence of the Holy One. Does this sound familiar to anyone? There's a parallel. Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah chapter 6, we read of Isaiah seeing the Lord, that is God, seated on his throne. And when he saw God, Isaiah cries out, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh of hosts. He says, I've seen the Lord, I've seen God. And then he pronounces a curse upon himself, woe. He says, I'm toast, I'm coming undone, I'm dead, I'm damned. Why? Because God is here and I am a sinner. Peter and Isaiah had the exact same response. Why? Because they both knew they were in the presence of God. And if you think I'm stretching that text in Luke 5 with Peter and in the parallel with Isaiah, John chapter 12, verse 41, John explains who it was that Isaiah saw. John says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory. And in the context, he's referring to Jesus. Isaiah says, or John says, Isaiah saw Jesus and spoke about Jesus. So the parallel is even stronger that whenever Peter said, depart from me, O Lord, I'm a sinful man. He's seeing what Isaiah saw. The word of God declares that Jesus is Lord now, again, time will not permit me to give you any more examples, but there are tons more where Jesus' lordship is equated to his divinity. There are Old Testament texts that are applied directly to Yahweh, right, that are then applied to Jesus. What does that mean then? That means Jesus is the Yahweh they were speaking about. He is the God they were speaking about in the Old Testament. But I don't have time to get into all those. Right? But this is, all, this is not even to consider his miracles, where he displays that he's lord over the cosmos He causes the weather to change. Why? Because he told it to. Right? That's God. He casts demons out with a word. He doesn't do a ritual. He says, get out of here, and they go. He defies the laws of nature. By walking on water, he shows that he's sovereign over sickness and even death by healing people and raising them from the dead. In all of his works, he displays that he is Lord over the entire created order. Everything, even spiritual beings, must submit to him and do as he says. He is God. He is Lord. So brothers and sisters, I hope that I have made it undeniably clear to you so far that the declaration that Jesus is Lord is a declaration that Jesus is God. Jesus Christ is fully, truly, undeniably God according to the scriptures. He is Yahweh, come in the flesh, the second person of the blessed Trinity that we were just singing about earlier. He is the creator, the sustainer, the author of life, the determiner of death. He is God, He is holy. In his divine nature, he is nothing like us. He is, as R.C. Sproul often said, he is other. He's other from us. He's transcendent, majestic, beautiful, completely righteous, sinless, perfect. He is the judge of all mankind. He is the governor of the universe. He is the ruler of all. He is God. And as God, he is worthy of our worship. I preached this a couple of weeks ago. We'll beat that drum until I die. He's worthy of our worship as God. He's worthy of all of our praise, of every good word and good work that he desires from us. He's worthy of all of our time, all of our resources, all that we are. He's worthy of our glad submission to him and all that he says and wills. He is worthy. Why? Because he's Lord. Because he's God. And so we are to treat him as such and declare the same to the world. We are to declare to the world that as Lord, as God, Jesus is owed the primary allegiance of all men. Why? Because you're a creature and he created you. You owe him. We declare that. He is God. And we are to esteem him higher than all and reverence him in every area of our life. There are none like Him. Remember what God says in Isaiah, To whom will you liken me? He says, There's none like me. The same is true of our Lord Jesus, and we are to think of him that way. He is Lord. But having considered that his Lordship means his deity, we, we now return, or rather, we now turn to another and related topic of his lordship: his dominion. That he is Lord means that he has dominion. Now I need to say that this is all very closely related to the fact that he is God, right? Very, very close, right? Because God has dominion over all things, right? So I want to be very clear. Maybe this will actually help some of you read your Bibles. I hope so, right? Jesus already had dominion in every way in his divine nature. As God, he already had dominion over all things, but the Bible teaches us that he also received dominion. How? Well, he's truly human. In his human nature, Jesus received dominion. So here's a beautiful thought before we dig in. He truly has dominion in both natures. And that means that in every way imaginable, in every way conceivable, Jesus is Lord. Both as God and man, Jesus is Lord of all. I like that. Both natures. There's no escaping it. You consider him as human, he has dominion, he's Lord. Consider him as God, well, of course he has dominion, and he is Lord. And the title Lord, as I said about that Adonai title, this title doesn't just mean he's God, it means that he is the sovereign ruler, the master, the king of everything. And I'm going to get hype as I teach you guys this. I'm just going to warn you, I am very excited. Let's begin by looking first to Psalm 110, verse 1. We read, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So King David, who authored this psalm, writes that Yahweh, if you see it in your English Bibles, all caps, Lord, Yahweh tells one who is David's Lord, David's sovereign, his Adonai, God tells this Lord to sit down at his right hand. And the right hand of God is the place of authority and honor. And the one who is called Lord is going to sit there until his enemies are conquered. He's going to have dominion over everything. But who is this Lord? Who is this Lord that David saw who seated at the right hand of Yahweh? Most of us know just because we recite the creeds and stuff, but I want to show you from scripture who this person is. The Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 2, verses 32 through 36 tells us that this psalm, Psalm 110, is to be applied directly to Jesus Christ. This is not an inference. This is apostolic teaching. Acts 2, 32 through 36, he says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore, Jesus, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel, know therefore, for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified." Under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, Peter says that Psalm 110 is about Jesus and his ascension to the right hand of the Father. And this ascension was Christ's formal coronation ceremony as Lord. He was seated at the right hand of the Father and in his human nature was officially declared Lord of all. Now I want to be clear, this was also true of Christ at his resurrection... But it was officially and publicly declared in his ascension to heaven where he was was seated. He began his session, is what we call that in theology. He was seated at the right hand of God. The, The point is this. God the Father has made Jesus in his human nature Lord. Jesus, therefore, is sovereign. He is the ruler. He is the king. He is the Adonai. He is in charge. Or consider the text of Daniel 7. Verses 13 through 14. I've read this to you guys so many times in the last year. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, the son of man, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus is this son of man. Jesus at his ascension came up on clouds did he not? And he came up to the ancient of days, God the Father, and there he was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. There he was given all authority, there he was given an eternal kingdom. There He was given by his Father the right to rule all peoples and nations and be served, that is, worshipped, obeyed by them all. Jesus has dominion because he is Lord. Consider the words of Christ himself, Matthew 28, 18. The Great Commission text that everyone forgets about, that is the great foundation of the Great Commission itself. Before he says, Go make disciples. He says, therefore go. Why? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He says, this world is mine. It belongs to me. Why? Because he's Lord. He's Lord. Or what does Paul say in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11? Paul speaking there of how Jesus came to earth, took on a human nature and humbled himself in obedience to God, even to the point of death on a cross. He speaks of that. And then we read, therefore, since he died, since he humbled himself, though he was God, though he took on human flesh and came and died for sinners, therefore God has highly exalted him. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. Having humbled himself to death, he has given the name above every name. And that name is Lord. He's given the title Lord And the apostle says, with much joy, I am sure that every single tongue will confess that. Everyone will. Everyone will confess that he is the sovereign. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is higher than all. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is the master of all because Christ has received total authority over everything. All things are under him. As the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 through 23, speaking of God the Father raising Jesus from the dead, Paul says that he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Do do you see? Do you see the extent of the authority and dominion of our Lord Jesus? Do you see? And I don't want to step on everybody's end-time theology toes because I know most of you guys think that I'm losing my mind because I'm post-millennial, but hear me. Do you see that his authority and dominion is not awaiting some future millennium? It's just not. With all respect to John MacArthur and all those cats, I love him to death, his authority is not awaiting some future time. He has it now. He is above all things Now. He is sovereign over all things now. This world belongs to him now, and it has ever since he was raised from the dead and ascended to heaven. He reigns because he is Lord. That Jesus is Lord means that he occupies the office of king. we confess that he is our prophet, priest, and king? That he is our Lord means that he is our king. He alone he and he alone rules, governs, guides, directs, and controls all things. As I said a couple of weeks ago, this is his world and we're just living in it. This is his world. He is the king. He is the one to whom all owe their submission. He is the rightful heir of all things because his father gave it to him. He is God's appointed and anointed king. There is no other. There is, please hear me, there is no legitimate authority that would ever seek to place itself above him. There is no authority above him. In the final analysis, there is no king but Christ. There is no sovereign but the Lord. Why? Because all authority belongs to him. Brothers and sisters, this lordship has implications. The Lord Jesus is the supreme lawgiver then, because he's Lord He alone determines what is morally right and morally wrong. Why? Because he's Lord. And because this world is his. Because what he says is how it is. His word is law. No human autonomy is a myth. No human being is autonomous. No men get to legitimately create their own laws apart from him. And any laws that conflict with his laws are no laws at all because he is the lawgiver. He is the king. And to him and his law, all men answer. We do not have the right or authority to make moral judgments apart from him. Why? Because he is the king. So please hear me. Contrary to what our 21st century uh, world likes to say, morality is not relative. It's not subjective. It's not just, you know, whatever your opinion is, man. It's in stone. And that's because there's a king who gives law. There's a king who very much cares about how people in his realm behave. And I'll make a note here that his realm is the whole world. It's not just the church. He's not lawgiver over merely the church. He was not given dominion just over the church. He was given dominion over the world. And so all men are accountable to his laws, his just decrees. He is Lord, so he is lawgiver. And going with that, there's something that we're told about his lordship, right? This is going to piggyback off him being lawgiver. In Psalm chapter 2, verses 10 through 12, after being given authority over the whole world, a warning comes to all those who refuse his warning and rule. Psalm 2 is about Christ. It's also applied to Jesus uh, by Peter in the book of Acts. We read this Psalm chapter 2 verses 10 through 12. Now therefore, O kings, now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. All the kings of the earth are to be wise and and kiss the Son. What Son? The Son of God. They're to kiss the Son, the King. They're to submit to him in true, glad obedience. Why? Because there is a King that God has established over them, there is a true Lord. Jesus is Lord, not men. And all men, no matter how much earthly power they have, the psalm says that all men will perish if they do not kiss the Son in faith and submission. But on the other hand, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Blessed are all who come to him. Blessed and saved and safe are all who take refuge in this King. Jesus is Lord. Let me go further with more applications of this. He's Lord, as we read in Ephesians 1. He's head over his church. He's head over his church. So his lordship obviously extends to the church. After doing his work of salvation for us, he was given to us as our head. So he reigns over us, brothers and sisters. And that means some things that I think get forgotten in in a lot of churches. We're not free to do whatever we want here. Like not just in general in our lives, but like here in the assembly. you're not free to do whatever you want. We are not free to modify his worship to suit our tastes. He's the head. We, and we are not free to amend his message, are we? if he is the head of the church. The head does the thinking, the body does the moving as the head tells it. We don't, we don't think for ourselves. We're sheep. Don't be offended. The Bible says so. We don't think for ourselves. Our head tells us what to think. We don't amend his message. And listen, we don't downplay any of the doctrines that offend modern men. We're not permitted to downplay any part of his word or law that makes men angry because he is the head. He is the Lord, and this is his church. And so we are bound to him in everything. Another application Jesus is Lord, and that means, and I love this, he doesn't answer to anybody, he doesn't answer to anyone. But all men are accountable to him. Hebrews 4.13 And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. He is Lord, and so he is judge. Every man must stand before his tribunal. Every man, woman, and child must give an account to him. Since he is Lord, that means there is a great reckoning in the end. And those who did not seek refuge in him, as we were instructed to do in Psalm 2, they will come under the condemnation of the king. He does not answer to us, but rather we all answer to him. A quick aside, so, so many people foolishly think that they will somehow get the last word on Christ. You ever met that person? You know, when I die, I've got some things to say to him. You're stupid. You're stupid if you think that. That's folly. He will not answer to you. He is the Lord. If the king does not permit you to speak, you do not speak. He is the Lord. And so all answer to him. He reigns. The Lord reigns. And again, I I want to be clear. He reigns over the whole world, over believers and unbelievers. I'm not saying that there's no distinction between the church and the world, because there is, but the, the, the lordship of Christ is over all realms, not just the church. There's not a radical distinction in his lordship between the church and the world, right? So, just real quick enough of this nonsense then that religion is a private affair. Not our religion. It's not. Right, you hear that, right? Do whatever you want in your house, in your church, but don't bring your religion out here in the public square. Nonsense. He's Lord of the public square. And you're obligated to obey him. Enough of this nonsense that religion is not to have a say in government. Not our religion. Now I'll tell you what, the Romans understood that to some degree or another, and that's why they viewed Christianity as a threat. Because we said Caesar is not Lord, Jesus is Lord, and Caesar must submit to him. Now, our weapons are not swords. Our weapons are not guns. Right? It's not that kind of a kingdom. This kingdom is not of the world. But this kingdom will take over the world through the message preached. Jesus Christ is king over Caesar. So Jesus Christ is king of all governments. It's just some governments don't submit to him yet. But they will. I hope we can all agree whatever your end times theology is, they all will at some point. It's just when. Why? Because he's Lord. It's just that some in futility rebel against him for a time. So since Jesus is Lord, he is truly Lord over everyone and everything, and personal opinion is irrelevant, and religious opinions are irrelevant, because he is objectively the Lord, and so all men are subject to him. And as I've alluded to, this utter sovereignty over the world means in the end that he will have dominion over the whole world. His lordship actually ensures his victory over all things because if he has all authority, then he is free at any time to exercise all authority and take this place over. And he will because he is lord. Bottom line, Jesus Christ is Lord of all, not just over the church, not just over religion, not just over believers, but over every single thing. He is Lord of everything, physical and spiritual, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, mountains and molecules, law and lands, believers and unbelievers. He is Lord. It's all his. And we need to know that. But now we come to the final point that I'd like to make concerning Christ's lordship. And I know I've been up here for 47 minutes and 40 seconds. I keep a timer. You've all seen The Patriot. It'll be fine. That movie's like three hours long. Be quiet. (laughs) Since Jesus is Lord, that means that he is the director of our lives. Right? And this really flows out of the points that I've already made. He's the director of our lives. Since he is God, since he is the sovereign ruler, since those things are true, here are the practical ramifications. Jesus Christ as Lord will not play second fiddle to anyone or anything. He will be first and he absolutely will not accept anything less. I heard one country pastor in a sermon I was listening to. I listened to sermons about whatever text I'm going to preach to see if someone said it better than me because I will steal from them and then credit them. <laughs> but I heard one country pastor say this in, in just this big southern drawl, and it hit me like a ton of bricks. He said, brothers and sisters, Jesus will not come next. He won't come next. It won't be something and then him. No, he doesn't come next. He must always come first. Even in his earthly ministry, Luke chapter 9, there was a man who said, Jesus, I want to follow you, but first let me bury my father. And that doesn't mean there's a rotting corpse. What that means is my father is getting older. Let Let me stay with him until he's dead, and then I'll follow you. And Jesus says, no, let the dead bury the dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. He says, no, you come now. Another man said that he wanted to say goodbye to his family first. Let me say farewell to my family. And Jesus says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. He will not come next. He will never accept second best And surely, in our narcissistic 21st century age where everyone says, you know, I'm not going to let another man make me second best, right? Surely, we can understand that the one who's actually the greatest will not accept being made second. Anything less than first is beneath him and an insult to his majesty and glory. Brothers and sisters, we must take this seriously. We, we must take his lordship seriously. Hear me. If we do not, then we, especially as reformed Christians who are known for exposition and we love theology and we're like, we're like the, the, the stern ones, right? We of all are the highest order of hypocrites in the world if we do not take the lordship of Christ seriously. Why would we say that we believe every word in the book That we believe that Jesus is everything that I've expounded on this morning, but then put him second in our lives. That is rank hypocrisy, and it stinks in the nostrils of God. And I fear that all of us, in one way or another, are guilty of this. All of us, to, to a man, in some area of your life, in some way, there is some part that Christ is not Lord over. He is but you're fighting it. And so we all need to repent of something, I'm sure. All of us in some way neglect the lordship of Christ, and it is to our spiritual harm. It besmirches the glory of Christ, and it gives the world one more reason to reject our gospel. We must put him first because he's worthy. He's Lord, and so he is Lord over our whole lives And so in obedience to him, we are to crown him with many crowns in every aspect. As I said earlier, he's the lawgiver. He's the king. He's the Lord, and his law is not optional. Obedience is not an option. It's demanded from the Lord of all lords. Brothers and sisters, as Lord, Jesus has the right and prerogative to demand and command literally anything he desires from us. He has the right to tell us what we are to do and not to do on the Lord's day. He has the right to claim for himself one day in seven that uniquely belongs to him. He has the right to tell us what to shield our eyes from and what we entertain ourselves with and watch in our homes. He has the right to tell us what is funny and what is not funny. He has the right to tell us what our sense of humor should be like. He has the right to tell us how to interact with our spouse. He has the right to tell us how to raise our kids. He has the right to command our attitudes as well as our words and actions. He has the right to command that our speech be pure and free from wickedness, slander, hatred, and harm. He has the right to command us to give our time, money, and skills to the church and its mission. He has the right to tell us to be patient and gentle towards those who have offended us. You get what I'm I'm getting at, I hope. Nothing is off limits to him because he's Lord. He's Lord and we as those under his lordship are obligated to not just declare and agree that he is lord but we are under divine and kingly obligation to actually submit to him or be gross of or guilty of gross rebellion against the lord we must take him seriously because he is lord but i want you to remember this as well he is not just the sovereign god and lord he is also our sweet savior Please don't forget this. He is the one who loved us and gave himself up for us. He's the one who shed his blood to take away our sins. He's the one who suffered God's wrath that we deserve for our lack of submission to his lordship. Imagine that for a moment. The gospel sounds crazy, but it's beautiful. This Lord, whom we have offended because we do not submit to his lordship, has taken our punishment in our place, has died for us. He has redeemed our life from the pit. He is the one who saved us. And so our submission to him is not begrudging. It's glad. It's, it's oh. joyful. It's sweet. It's a joyful bending of the knee and bowing down in our hearts and our lives to him. He's our savior. And so we love him. Right? He, hear me. Here's a thought. He's our Lord, not just the Lord. He's our Lord, whether or not we recognize it. But what I mean is by faith, we have come to him. And now we gladly say he's my Lord and I love him. And I live to glorify him who loved me first. He's not just the Lord, he's my Lord. And now I live for him. He rules over us with love. And so we submit to him. But in closing, let me just say three things quickly. One, proclaim him as Lord. Right? Like I said in the beginning, we are a church that exists to proclaim the Lordship of Christ. Don't tell people he's just the Savior. Tell them that. And tell them that he's Lord. Tell them he's worthy of their worship, that he demands their submission, that he is the King of all kings. Proclaim him as Lord. Our Lord Jesus does not apologize for being Lord. Therefore, we will not apologize for declaring that he is Lord. Don't just say that he's the Savior. Teach people that he is the Lord. Second, as I've just said, honor him as the Lord. In everything that you do, esteem him highly in your hearts. Run everything that you do or want to do or want to think or want to say through the filter of his word. Honor him in everything as Lord. And remember, there's a reason that we call him the Lord Jesus. And lastly, please remember this. This mighty king, this mighty Lord, this sovereign God is the same one who loves you and gave himself to save you. And that will make all the difference in the world in your motivation to submit to him and proclaim him as Lord. And so as I close, I close with the most basic confession of the Christian church through the ages. Jesus is Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Our great God, we thank you for your word that instructs us and and teaches us. We thank you for your word that that confronts us with the fact that we uh, do not belong to ourselves that no one is autonomous, that everyone and everything belongs to you through your son. Grant us courage to go out and proclaim the lordship of Christ. God, grant us hearts that are submissive to live out the lordship of Christ in our lives. Grant us repentance. Let us not hold anything back from Christ. Help us to not be hypocrites. Help us to recognize that whatever it is that we hold on to uh, that defies the lordship of Christ is ultimately not worth it. Again, help us to proclaim and live out that he is Lord. We ask for divine aid, and we ask that you'd help us to glorify you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.